Open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to continue in our series this morning entitled The Story of God, where we've been looking at the overall history of God's working throughout Scripture by breaking it down into several different eras. And the the idea of this series is to give us a better idea of God's overall story. Thus far, we've looked at God's story in the era of creation and early humanity. Then we've looked at the era of the patriarchs of God's people. We've looked at the era of the exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And then we looked at the era of the conquest and the judges. We left off in this series, the people of God have come into the land of Canaan, that land that God had promised them, and they've settled there and they've made it their home. And once they settled there, they endured close to 400 years known as the era of the judges. The last judge during this era is a godly man. He's a prophet and a judge named Samuel. And so we pick up this morning as Samuel is getting old and the people of God are looking to their future beyond Samuel. So let's look at our text today, and I invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations." The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also." Now then, listen to their voice, however. You shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And then in verses 10 through 18, Samuel tells them all of the negative things that will come from them having a king. But the people persist. In verse 19, they say, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Lord, would you speak today? God, we don't need to hear another sermon. God, we don't even really uh, need to know just historical facts. God, we need to know those things because those things can point us to you. And so, Lord, today I pray genuinely, God, would you put your words in my mouth like Jeremiah. Oh, Lord, help me to please you. And, God, I pray that you would speak to your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The title of our message today is The Story of God in the Era of the Kings. As we see from our text this morning, the season of the judges gives way to the era of the kings in the lives of God's people. Now, the idea of kings and royalty is something that's not familiar to us here in America where we don't have really any monarchical history. But that's not true for the rest of the world. America is unique in that. Virtually all of the rest of the civilized world, if you trace back their history, the vast majority of their histories will go back to some sort of king or vassal or some sort of royal history over them. 
And our minds have just recently kind of been brought back to this idea of kings and royalty uh, as just recently the United Kingdom has mourned the loss of its longest running monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. And so we see this morning in this text that despite God's warnings to the children of Israel to enter into a long season of their lives ruled by kings, they still persist and they say, we want a king. Now, we also see here that God disapproved of this by calling a king to lead them. But ultimately, in his sovereignty, God would ultimately be able to work his purposes through the kings in many ways like today. God in his sovereignty, he is still able to work his purpose in the middle of our messes that we often see in our lives that even we see in Scripture. The era of the kings in the lives of God's people covers roughly 500 years of redemptive history. Uh, So as the old country song says, we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there this morning. So we're going to jump right into some of our questions that we've been using to kind of help us guide us in this process. But question number one is basically what is the major happenings during this season in God's story? What's going on? What is the major happenings? And The first major happening we need to understand in this era in God's story is how it has all been recorded to us in Scripture. This era in God's story is unique because of how many voices and how many authors in Scripture are speaking into this era. And one of the easiest ways to to understand what's all being said in this era from Scripture is to break it up into the different types of Scripture that speak into this era. So first there's the historical writings, there are the prophetic writings, and then there are the wisdom literature. The historical books that God gives us in this era are the ones that essentially tell us the story of the events of the, of the lives of God's people during this era that follow the kings and follow the military commanders primarily. And there are six historical books in the Bible that speak into this era. They are First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Then there are the prophetic books in this era. All throughout this era, you see there are multiple different prophets that are speaking into this era, speaking to the king, speaking to God's people during this era. And several of them actually have their own books. There are 12 prophetic books from Scripture that speak into this era. They are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Daniel, Habakkuk, and even likely the prophet Obadiah speaks into this. Now, to help you better understand all these names and dates and things this morning, in your bulletins this morning, you should have a handout. And if you didn't get one, I encourage you to get one on the way out. And this is by Rose Publishings. And I encourage you, if you ever want to order that book, the Rose Books of Bible Charts and Maps, it's very, very helpful at home, especially in training your kids and teaching your children. But it basically will give you a picture of not only what kings served at what time frame, but it even shows you what prophets are speaking during what era in God's people's lives here. So it's it's helpful to understand what's going on and when. And then lastly, the wisdom literature that comes from this era in God's story includes a considerable amount of the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Song of Solomon. So I want you to wrap your mind around this for a moment. That is 22 books. There are 22 books that speak into this 500-year era of God's redemptive history. There are 66 books total in the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. So exactly one-third of our entire Bible speaks into this era in God's 
story. So what should that say to us this morning? God's got a lot to say to us in this story. And God's got a lot for us to glean in this epic, in this era, in God's story. So that's the first major thing you need to see. The second major happening to look at in this era is the season of the United Kingdom. When I talk about the United Kingdom, I'm not talking about Europe. We're predating that here. We're talking about the United Kingdom among God's people. As we saw in our text this morning, once God's people kept persisting that Samuel give them a king, God then shows Samuel a man named Saul to anoint as the first king over all the 12 tribes of Israel. So Saul would be the first of three kings who would rule over all 12 of the tribes of Israel. Now here's what you need to know. Again, I want you to refer back to your map. Is that there's a season in God's history here where all the tribes of Israel are united in one kingdom. And that is the season, the era of the United Kingdom. After Solomon is that the United Kingdom then breaks up. Is there is a division among God's people. And then it is referred to as the northern kingdom which carries the name Israel that are the remaining tribes of Israel, the southern kingdom, which is primarily the tribe of Judah, and it refers to the tribe of Judah. So that's important to know as you track uh, this history. So let's talk a little bit about the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom's leadership begins under King Saul. This is the first king of the people of God. The leadership of King Saul begins with his unique calling. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 9 through 10, you can read how supernaturally God brings Saul into the presence of Samuel. God reveals to Samuel that this is the future king. Samuel takes a flask of oil and pours it all over his head. This was a symbolic thing in the Old Testament of the anointing of God's choosing of this person. And so Saul is surprised that this prophet of God, this judge of God has just said, you will be the next king. He doesn't really believe it. He leaves on the way home. God supernaturally reveals to him again that he will be the next king. And so then later in in chapter 10, we see as they are casting lots, that the people of God affirm Saul publicly as the king over Israel. So there's, there's a lot that we could talk about in the life of Saul. Let me give you just a few highlights. First, the Bible says that Saul was a fearful king. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, again, so Samuel anoints Saul. He lets him know he's going to be the next king in kind of a private ceremony. Then sometime later, when Samuel draws all the people together, he says, okay, you've asked for a king, let's see who will be your king. And they start casting lots, which was just a random way to see, uh, to make a decision. But like they already knew, is the lots ultimately fell to Saul. And Saul knew that too. Saul knew that he was going to be the next king. They start looking for him, and they can't find him. They find Saul, the Bible says, hiding among the luggage of the men, the elders, who had showed up. This great, mighty, strong, statured man, the Bible says he was head and shoulders taller than all the men of Israel, is that he is a fearful man at the beginning of his ministry. The Bible says then after that that Saul started off as king in a mighty way. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, the Bible says the Spirit of God comes mightily upon uh, Saul and he is able to lead the people of God into a great victory over the the Ammonites and they're able to uh, make great sacrifices to God to thank God for his protection. It's a beautiful picture of how God can take a fearful man, fill him with the Spirit of God and make him a great 
leader. If you're here this morning and you want to be used of the Lord, God doesn't need what's in you. God's going to take him and put himself in you, and that's how he can use you. But then the Bible says, however, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, that we begin to see Saul dishonoring the Lord. He steps in and he makes a sacrifice to the Lord for protection in battle without waiting on Samuel, which was Samuel's responsibility as the prophet. And the Bible says that Samuel says to him then, Saul, your kingdom will not endure. But his greatest moment of dishonoring the Lord happens in 1 Samuel chapter 15. The Bible says that God tells Saul to go and defeat the Amalekites. But he says, take no prisoners and take no spoil. Well, they go, they defeat the Amalekites, but rather King Saul takes the king captive of the Amalekites and they, carry, they gather all the spoil, which were their sheep and their livestock, and they bring them back to Israel. God makes Samuel aware of this, and so Samuel goes to rebuke Saul that he has not honored the Lord. And Saul says, but oh Samuel, I have honored the Lord. And in a famous moment, the Bible says that Samuel says, then what is the bleeding of sheep? That I hear. Saul could not keep his sin hidden. And Saul tries to cover it up. He says, Oh, but Samuel, I brought the sheep back for us to make a great sacrifice before God. And this is what Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. He says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination as as iniquity and idolatry. And he says this, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. After this moment, God begins to deal with Samuel, who will be the next king, who will, who will ultimately end up being the next king of Israel. Saul would remain in the place of the kingship for the next 15 to 20 years. But the Bible says that shortly after this, the hand of God is removed from Saul. And it's actually a sad picture to watch this man. He's disobeyed the Lord and how the hand of God has been removed from him. The United Kingdom then continues under the leadership of King David. Now, David is arguably one of the most significant persons in the Old Testament. He is known for his courage and passion for God. Years, hundreds of years after David in the New Testament, the Bible refers to King David as a man who was after the heart of God. If you look in 1 Samuel chapter 16, you hear the great story of how God chose David to be the next king. God reveals to Samuel that he needs to go to Bethlehem to go to the house of Jesse and there he would choose the next king. He goes to Jesse's house and Jesse starts bringing his sons, his his sons before Samuel. The first son is again another good looking, mighty man. And even Samuel says, surely this is the next of the Lord's anointed. But the Bible says that God speaks to Samuel. Do not look at the outward appearance for God looks at the heart. And he passes seven sons before Samuel. And each one of them, God says, no, this is not the king. Finally, he turns to Jesse and he says, do you have any more sons? And he says, the youngest, for he is out in the pasture tending the flock. And he said, bring him. 
And when David comes in, this young, the, the, the historians would say that he's probably a young teenager at this point. As soon as he comes in, is that uh, the, the Bible says Samuel sees him, the Lord says, this is him. And he, he again takes the flask of oil and pours it over David's head and anoints him to be the next king of Israel. Again, in a private ceremony, kind of in the same way that God did it privately with Saul before he was publicly recognized. Now let me, later on, God would end up raising David up to be the king. Let me give you some notable facts about the life of King David. David really begins to come on the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David courageously slays Goliath, the giant of the Philistines. In this moment, God gives David favor in the eyes of Saul, and Saul puts David in charge of his men of war. Also at this moment, God begins to exalt David in the eyes of the people, and Saul begins to become jealous of David. In fact, for the remaining chapters in 1 Samuel chapter 18, through the remaining chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, we see multiple times Saul attempting to take David's life and to run him out of the kingdom. David spends a significant amount of time living in the wilderness, living among foreign nations. But while he's doing that, God continually rallies people around David to be his support and to encourage him. And even in that season, David had two times that he could have killed Saul, but David did not lay his hand on Saul because David trusted in the Lord. He basically said, when God wants me to be king, God will work it out without my help. And he honored the authority of the position that God had put over him. It's a great picture reminder of us to honor those who are in authority over us, even if they're not always great people. But the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 31 that Saul ends up dying in battle along with his sons. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, then we see David learns of Saul's death. He mourns him. In the first few verses of 2 Samuel chapter 2, the Lord tells David to go to Hebron and there he is anointed king, but king just by the tribe of Judah, by his own tribe. But then after this, there's a short period of kind of civil war after the death of Saul. But eventually in 2 Samuel chapter 5 verses 1 through 5, David is anointed, is affirmed as king over all of Israel. It says in verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, and they anointed David king over Israel. After this, we begin to see in 1 Samuel chapter 7 that uh, David begins, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, that David begins to desire to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant to replace the tent or the tabernacle where it had dwelt during the days of Moses. God ultimately ends up telling David that, David, you will not build the, t- the, the temple, but one of your sons after you will build it. But David's heart for God, so much so in this moment, God is so pleased that God makes a covenant with David. It is referred to as the Davidic covenant, where he says, I will establish your kingdom and it will have no end. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 It says, the house, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Not only is God honoring David's heart here, but we see this is absolutely what comes to fruition because through the line of David will come about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords whose kingdom has no end. Over the 40 years of King David's reign, he did many great things, but also... He sinned before the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, 
In a season when David's kingdom was greatly blessed, one day in the springtime, instead of going out to war with his army, which is where he was supposed to be, David stayed at home. And while at home, he looks out his window and he sees a woman named Bathsheba bathing. And he begins to lust for her. And she is the wife of another man named Uriah. And he calls her to him and and he lays with her. And ultimately, he finds out that she becomes pregnant. He tries to hide his sin, but that is to no avail. And eventually, he ends up killing Uriah. And after killing Uriah, he brings Bathsheba into his house as his wife. It was a great fall for David. And he suffered many consequences of sin because of it. Ultimately, two of his sons end up dying because of this sin. But he was very repentant of the Lord. Psalm chapter 51 is a great chapter of his repentance. He says, purify me, wash me, O Lord, with hyssop. Cleanse me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within him. God gives him grace. He still suffers the consequences of his sin, but God does give him grace. And before he dies, at the age, roughly at the age of 70, David then uh, appoints his son Solomon to be king in his place. So the last king of the United Kingdom is King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 39 and 40, we see the moment where Solomon is crowned the king. It says, Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil and from the tent and anointed Solomon. They blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into a lot of detail about King Solomon, but let me tell you a few of the good things that we know about King Solomon. First, we know that at the beginning of his reign, God asked him, said, Solomon, I will give you anything that you desire. And he prayed for wisdom. And the Bible said it pleased God. And so because he prayed for wisdom, God gave him wisdom and blessed him immensely. We also know that he was the one who eventually built the temple of God and consecrated it as the place of worship there in Jerusalem. And when he built the temple of God, the Bible says that he he prayed and the glory of God filled the house of God. And we also know that under Solomon's leadership, the nation of Israel was incredibly blessed economically. Scripturally speaking, at one point, the Bible says that during the reign of Solomon, that silver was as common as stones on the ground in Jerusalem. However, Solomon also did many things that were wrong in the eyes of God. Solomon was a great polygamist. He took hundreds of wives and concubines, which is a reminder to us here today, parents, that we are always discipling our children, either good or bad. David was one who sinned sexually before God, and we see that being repeated and expounded upon in Solomon. We are giving an example to our children in how we live good or bad. But we also see that at the end of his life, the Bible says that Solomon turned away from God and began worshiping idols because of these foreign wives. Probably one of the saddest passages in Scripture is 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. This is when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. In fact, if you look at the remainder of 1 Kings chapter 11, you see that it was because of uh, his sin of idolatry that God disciplined Solomon. And after that, the kingdom of God is divided. Is that God makes a covenant with David. He said, I will establish your kingdom with one tribe of the, ki- of the people of God. But because of the sin of Solomon is that now I will tear part of the kingdom 
away from you. And so that brings us into the season of our third major happening, which is the moment, the season of the divided kingdom. So if you look at your chart today, and it should be on the screen again, you will see the United Kingdom only lasted for a little over 100 years. 1 Kings chapter 12 records that after Solomon's death, that the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom that goes again by the name of Israel and the southern kingdom that goes by the name of Judah. It is the southern kingdom that continues to retain the lineage of King David. During this time frame, God deals with both nations independently, but he still sees both kingdoms as his special people. God recognizes their division on earth, but they are still united in his heart. And this time frame of the divided kingdom is that it spans roughly 200 years with both kingdoms existing and operating and roughly another 150 years with the kingdom of Judah remaining alone. Now a historical point to know here is that both the northern and the southern kingdom eventually are conquered by outside military forces because both of them ended up turning away from the Lord and God had to discipline them. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians and they roughly cease to exist. And in 586 B.C., Judah, the southern kingdom, is conquered by the Babylonians and most of the people are carried away into exile. The city is destroyed and even worse, the temple of God is destroyed and the things in the temple of God are carried away also into exile. So let me give you a few things briefly that you need to notice from the scriptures about this time in God's story. First, in this season of the divided kingdom, there are many prophets that God used to speak during this time period. If you look again at your chart there in the middle, there are 16 prophets overall, 12 of which actually write books of scripture in this time frame. Consistently, we see that God is using the prophets to warn the people of God. Hey, you're sinning against me. You're following after the pattern of the world. If you don't turn back to me, I am going to discipline you. And he says, I'm going to exile you and bring you into a foreign land. But even then he says, but I will, even in that place, one day bring you back. If you've been reading your one-year Bible, this is what you've been reading recently in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is saying, hey, I'm about to come and, and, and bring the hammer. And I'm about to judge my people and you will be taken away into a foreign land. However, another thing to notice during this era as you read the prophets is God is not just speaking through the prophets about what's going on in their present and their near future. Several places, hundreds of prophecies during this several hundred years speak about God is giving them words about a day distant in the future. Most of the prophecies we have about the Messiah, about Christ, are found during this era of time. 700, 800, 900 years before Jesus would even step on the scene, several of these prophets are speaking to that day. And even beyond that, in the book of Daniel, we see several prophecies about the end of time at the return of Christ. So God had a lot to say during this time frame. A good thing to do, by the way, and this is why this chart is good and helpful, if you know what's going on in the lives of God's people when these prophets are speaking, then you can read through that and often you can recognize, okay, what the prophet is speaking about here has nothing to do with what's going on presently in their life. Or, or the day of restoration that he's talking about here seems so much more than God just bringing the people back to Jerusalem. This seems bigger and often that's when God is speaking prophecies about the distant future. 
Secondly, in this season of the divided kingdom, the legacy of the kings is most often recorded not by how they led practically, but how they led spiritually. The two examples that you see here are the example of Asa and example of Omri that I've given us here on the screen. In 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 11, we see the legacy of King Asa was he was one who ruled Judah and he honored God. The Bible says Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord like David, his father. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But if you look at 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 25, we see the legacy of King Omri. Omri was one who ruled over the kingdom of Israel. And the Bible says that he dishonored God. And the Bible says Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. All throughout this era in God's story here is God refers to these people. God refers to these kings. He usually refers to them as either having those who did right in the sight of God or those who did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now this is something important to note. The Bible says that of the 20 kings of Judah, that only six of them are recorded as having done what was right in the sight of the Lord. And of the 19 kings of Israel, not one. Not one king did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And this is very likely why you see that Israel was conquered first before Judah was. Now obviously we don't have time to go through each and every one of these kings this morning. What I would challenge you on is when we get to December we're going to start uh, uh, giving out here our one year Bibles and this next year we're going to do a chronological Bible which goes through the scripture according to time. We're going to challenge our church members to read through the Bible again this next year and, and this every time I get into the era of the kings I find God speaking to my heart. I see these examples of these kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord, and I find myself praying, oh, God, protect me. God, warn me. God, help me to not be one of these men. And then when I see men like Hosea, when I see men like Josiah and Hezekiah, and I see these godly men in Scripture, I say, oh, Lord, help me to be a man like them. So that's the major happenings, by the way, in this 500 years. So question number two this morning, very quickly, is what are some of the key lessons that God wants us to learn today from this era in his story. Now, church family, there's a lot, okay? There's so much that God could speak to us here this morning. Man, we could talk about the courage that God gave David in the face of Goliath. We could talk about the confidence that God gave Elisha before hundreds of pagan prophets as he built an altar there and he said, let the God who is the one true God answer by fire. And he did that showdown on Mount Carmel. We could talk about the revival that happened under King Josiah, who the Bible said that his father had done evil in the sight of the Lord, and the temple of God was in disrepair, and they had forgotten about God. But Josiah said, let us rebuild the temple and repair the temple. And as they were in the temple, they found the Word of God, by the way, which reminds us that it's easy to to become a people who you claim to be the people of God, but we lose the book of God. And by the way, if we ever lose the word of God, then our sinfulness very rapidly increases. But the Bible says that when Josiah heard the law of God, that he tore his clothes and revival took place among the people of God. There's so much we could hear in this era. But I really felt as I prayed this last week that the Lord wanted me to give us... Just focus on three lessons that God may want to speak to us this morning. And the first is this. This era reminds us to be wary 
of how quickly God's people can turn from him. Probably Solomon is example number one in that. Think about this. Solomon had a dad who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. Solomon had heard from God audibly twice in his life. Solomon had been blessed immensely by God. Solomon was there when the glory of God filled the temple of God. Think about how many God moments Solomon had. But rather, towards the end of his life, even though he had experienced so much of God, the Bible said that his foreign wives turned his heart away from God and he started worshiping idols. You know, when I read that at first, it's easy for me to try to get haughty and say, how could anybody do that? And then quickly I come back and I look in my own heart and life, knowing how much Jesus has done for me and how many times he has blessed me and revealed himself to me and how quickly it is in my heart that I could turn away from him. And so this passage reminds us to be careful. And I believe even Solomon's legacy here shows us a few things to be careful of. First, it reminds us to be careful of the people that we gather around ourselves. The Bible says that Solomon allowed these foreign wives, these idolatrous wives to come into his house and they turned his heart from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. Church family, we need to look in our lives and say, who do we have in our lives that are challenging us in our relationship with God? Who do we have in our lives that are encouraging us to seek and pursue the Lord? Men and women, who do you have in your life that are encouraging you in God? That's why it's so important to be part of a church and not just Sunday morning church, but get in a life group, get in relationship with people. My mother's here with me this morning, and, and uh, I got in a lot of trouble when I was in middle school. Somebody asked me the other day if I knew Mr. Trotter, and I said, oh, I knew him very well. So my dad whipped us growing up. The worst whipping I ever had in my life was from Jimmy Trotter. But I remember getting in a lot of trouble in middle school, and my mom had been fed up with it. And I came home one day, and she looked at me in the eye, and she said, Zach, here's the truth. If you hang around trash long enough, you start to stink. And it was true. And it was a word, thus says mama, you know. Hey, this morning, we need to recognize what people do we have around us. And then secondly, this passage reminds us to be attentive to where and what we are worshiping. Solomon turned away from God because he had found something else to focus on. He was focusing his heart and his affections on something else. And when you talk about idolatry in our day and age, we kind of brush away from that. Well, Pastor Zach, I don't worship any idols. I don't have any pagan idols in my home. Do you? Because the reality is an idol is just those things that we fix our affection on, that we fix our worship on, that we ascribe more worth and value to than God. Jesus spoke about the focus of our eyes in Luke chapter 11, verse 34. He said that the eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is clear, if your eye is focused on good things, then your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, if you're focusing on the wrong things, then your whole body is full of darkness. Church family, what idols do we have in our lives? What are we worshiping? What do we long for more than anything else in the world? Those are the things that will turn our hearts away from God. And it can happen quickly. Several years ago when we were living in Arkansas, I was, we bought some, a house on some property and it had a lot of trees, and a lot of sweet gum trees that are good for nothing, by the way. And so uh, I didn't have a whole lot of time to exercise during that and I needed to work on these, getting these trees down. So I invented a workout program called P90 Axe. Okay? I went and bought me an axe and every day when I would get home from work, I'd try to cut down a tree. And there's just something satisfying about cutting down a, a big tree, a big mature tree with an axe that's you know, 30, 40, 50 feet tall. 
you know, they, they begin to crack and, you know, and then they, they fall over that big boom and immediately as a man you like sprout chest hair. You know, it's just like this is, this is awesome, you know. As I was marveling at one moment of some tree that I'd cut down, I sat there for a moment and I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. I said, Zach, how many decades do you think it took that tree to grow that tall? And in just a few hours, it came down. Church family, we've got to be careful of how quickly our hearts can turn away from God. Secondly, this era in God's story reminds us that God honors those who stand strong for Him. Man, so many heroes of the faith in this era of God's story. You've got the Elijahs, you've got the Hezekiahs, you've got Josiahs, you've got these people who stood strong when nobody else would. But as I began to think about what example I could give you this morning, the Lord reminded me of not people who were named in this era that were faithful unto the Lord, but those who were unnamed. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 19, as Elijah is running from his life from the murderous threats of an evil queen, Jezebel, that he begins to have a spiritual pity party. And I don't know if you've ever had those before, but I, I have. And, and he sits down and he begins to say, Oh God, I'm the only one left. Nobody worships you. Nobody serves you anymore. It's only me. And the Lord rebukes Elijah a little bit here. And he says to him in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, that I have, oh Elijah, I have 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed to Baal, the pagan idol. And I, every mouth that has not kissed him. In the middle of that moment, God began to speak to Elijah about these unnamed, faithful 7,000 that God knew who they were. He had counted them and he knew their name. These 7,000 were those who had only worshipped the one true God, though others around them had not. These 7,000 were those who likely faced the ridicule and disdain of those in their age. These 7,000 were those who were leading their children, their families to learn about and pray and serve the God of the Bible instead of the patterns of this world. And today, Christian friends, God is looking for those unnamed faithful followers of God who will not bow down to the idols of this age of money and power and sensuality. He's looking for those who will stand faithful to serving God, even though those around them might ridicule them and disdain them. God is looking for those who will teach their children the truth of God's world that goes against the cultural norms of today. God is looking for those whose hearts and lives are not bowing down to the idols of this world, but are standing strong in the pursuit of God and church family. I just got to ask you this morning, will you be among the unnamed faithful followers of the Lord in this age will we be like those in Acts chapter 5 verse 29 when the apostles said to those Jewish leaders who were telling them not to preach the gospel and they made the statement we must obey God rather than men and then finally the last lesson I felt God lay on my heart for us to consider about this season and God's story is that God is always speaking to his people Again, over and over and over and over again, in this time span, God kept sending them prophets. God kept sending them men of God who were begging them to turn, and God would bless them, who were begging them to seek them. God kept giving them words. A common statement during this era was this, thus says the Lord. Over and over again, God was regularly speaking to them. 
People ask the question, say, well, Zach, how does, how does God speak to us today? I want you to know something this morning, church family. In the New Testament, God is speaking even more so than we see Him in the Old Testament. The Bible says that in John chapter 16, Jesus told the disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but it's good that I go away. Because if I go away, I can send the Comforter to you, and He will be in you, and He will speak to you the things that are to come. He will reveal to you my will. This morning, the Bible says through the working of the Holy Spirit, through the church of God, through His people, and through especially His Scriptures that verifies the Word of God, that verifies the truth that God is speaking to His people. And, And friends, let me say something to you this morning. If you just get a word from the Lord, if you can just get one word from the Lord where God speaks something to you in your spirit or through somebody else or, or God takes these black ink and white pages and, and gives it a voice in your heart and life and speaks to you, it changes you forever. I can go through the history of my life and go from one altar to another altar to another altar where it was holy and life-changing and life-shaping. And I need that. I need it daily. I need it regularly. Sometimes God doesn't always speak in those loud moments like I want want Him to. And sometimes I think even in those moments, God is just causing me to hunger for Him more. And then He speaks His Word. But what I would felt God wanted me to ask you this morning, church family, is what is God saying to you lately? When was the last time that you heard from God? Maybe God's trying to speak to you this morning. Maybe God's trying to reveal to some of you this morning that you've never heard the voice of God because you don't know Him. And the reality is, is that the same God of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the same God who is on the throne today. And the Bible says one day we will all stand before Him. And if we do not know Him, we are woefully in judgment at that day. But Jesus loves us. He's offered grace and forgiveness to those who would seek Him this morning. Do you know Him today? Maybe He's speaking that to you. You need to give your life to Christ. Maybe He is warning you even this morning that you're getting close to sin. You're getting close to failing and falling. God's convicting you. Or maybe God's calling you up. I had an elder friend of mine in Arkansas who used to say that all I needed to hear from God was a Bible and a bag chair and a clear schedule. And that's true. I have found it true that if I will find myself to some secluded, quiet place, walk out in the woods, go to some park, If I've got my Bible and I make time to meet with God, if I seek Him, I find Him. Maybe some of you today, God's wanting you to go on some spiritual adventures to go meet with Him. My stepfather is here this morning and they've got a big rock on a bluff on their property. and He tells me multiple stories about him getting on that rock and times where God has met with him. Church family, God is not a God who is distant. He wants to be near. And lastly, this morning, and this will be quickly... But our third and final question that we must answer today, and we've been asking this question each week, is where are the redemptive threads in Scripture? During this era, where is the redemptive story? What is the part that points us to Jesus? All of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. All the New Testament points backwards to Jesus. And there's so many redemptive pictures in this era, but probably the greatest that the Lord reminded me of this week was the pointed prophecy of Christ It comes from the prophet Isaiah. Remember I told you that some of the prophets speaking to the direct situation and sometimes they're speaking to something far ahead. And in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before Jesus Christ would come to this earth to take on the sin of the world on the cross, to suffer on our behalf, the prophet Isaiah spoke it pointedly. 
I'm going to ask Brother Ron to come and begin to play quietly. And I, and I just I want to read this passage over you this morning. This is what Jesus has come to do for us. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. 700 years before Jesus is on the cross, the prophet has a picture of the cross. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Imagine the thieves on the cross next to him. Yet he was a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief, he would render himself as a guilt offering. So that he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord would prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Every time somebody gets saved, Jesus sees it and he's satisfied. He says, that's good. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Church family, if the era of the kings says anything to us today, it points us to the king of kings. It points us to Jesus. 700 years before Jesus would go to the cross, God gave the prophet Isaiah a picture of his suffering. And now today... Every time somebody comes to know Jesus, God gives us a picture in our mind and our soul of what He did for us on the cross. You see Him dying for you. And maybe this morning, God's awakening that in your heart and life. Maybe this morning you're seeing Jesus on the cross for the first time for you to pay for your sin. All you have to do is receive it. Say, Jesus, save me. I give my life to you. Right there where you are, you can pray that prayer in faith to the Lord. You can say, Jesus, save me. I give my life to you. Church family, life's not worth living in the fullness of God without Jesus. We miss it. We're missing everything. Maybe today, you need to come to know Jesus. Today, He is waiting for you. Would you come?
this morning, if you need to join this church family, if you need somebody to pray for you, our pastors will be up front. We'd love to invite you to come as we sing. Let me pray for us. Let me get you to stand. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, would you move and work in the lives of your people today for your name and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand right there where you are?